let's start. Let's begin. Hi, I'm Michelle Macklem, and I'm presenting today with the wonderful Andrew Leland. I am an audio artist and audio producer, and I co-founded an experimental podcast in the last year called Constellations. And I've had a love of experimental audio ranging from wacky stories on cassettes as a kid to experimental and electronic music. Myself, I like to make documentaries, I make podcasts, I make all sorts of weirdo things. And I really loved podcasts, still love them in different ways, but I used to listen to them all the time. I would be waking up in the morning and be listening to podcasts in my bed, and I'd go to sleep at night listening to podcasts. So it's pretty obsessive up until probably about two years ago. And around that time, I started getting super burnt out. Everything was sounding the same to me. I just wasn't, like, nothing was resonating. I wasn't really able to focus on listening anymore. And I started talking to people about that. And I found a lot of producers were getting burnt out on listening, finding that like we're doing it for our job and it's also to, hard to keep that curiosity and passion out, alive outside of our job. So Jess Shane and I co-founded Constellations as a response to that in many ways. Um, it's an outlet for people who work in more experimental realms where that doesn't really have an opportunity to live anywhere else online at the moment. Um, we feature short and weird pieces, usually under 10 minutes. And when we started it, we said we didn't really care who listened, that we just wanted this kind of living archive to exist somewhere. So, like, there's no, we release episodes every two weeks, but there's no pressure to listen. People can just kind of stumble across it and discover when it suits them and they can listen. Um, we like to feature works that use sound and story in a way that challenges preconceived ideas about how sound works. Um, and we, we found producers, artists, people that were just approaching audio for the first time, and we really wanted to cultivate a community space around that. And I feel so fortunate to be building this alongside Jess. Um, it's been a real privilege. And I thought I'd play a short clip that best demonstrates what we do. It's recorded at a place called Bread and Puppet. If you know it, it's a puppeteering kind of company in Vermont. And uh, this piece is called Course and Janky. It's pretty fun. It kind of shows you a bit that um, we're into stuff that may not exactly sound perfect. It's like a bit of, there's always a bit of line showing in how it's executed, but I really, really love this piece. And it's got a short intro um, like Constellations as well. Constellations. Audio ephemera from across the Milky Way. The Why Cheap Art Manifesto, written in Glover, Vermont in 1984. Too clean, the whole room is too clean, so you have to dig through this whole box to get, instead of it should be spread out all over the floor, here's a frying pan. People have been thinking too long that art is a privilege of the museums and the rich. What strikes me here, this is really the going back to paper mache. And I like Brand Puppet because it's fast and it's scrappy and it's raunchy and it's messy. So the do 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 is only for the elephants. Art is cheap. And that piece was by Alexandra Bregashevska, and we're really honored to feature it through Constellations. Now over to Andrew. Hi. I similarly am going to just quickly introduce myself as a way of talking about 
why I'm here and, 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 and where I come from in terms of my interest in experimental radio. I host a podcast called The Organist, which uh, was originally uh, came out of this magazine, The Believer, where I was an editor for about eight years. And <clears throat> um, The Organist, when we started it uh, with KCRW, is a collaboration between KCRW and McSweeney's, which published, published The Believer. Um, and I remember in the very beginning of The Organist, um, like I think it may not say this on our website anymore, but it was an experimental arts and culture podcast. And that's how I would describe it to people. And then at a certain point, I kind of looked in the mirror and I said, I don't actually know what that means. Uh, like, what do I mean it's experimental? In what way is it not just like uh, Studio 360 with a goatee? Uh, <laughs> what am I doing with my life? Um, and, 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 and this story is kind of, informed by when we first, so when we first started The Organist, um, it was me and um, another editor at The Believer, Ross Simonini, and we really were like, it's gonna sound nothing like any of the radio shows we love. It's gotta be completely new because those radio shows are already doing what they're doing, so we're just gonna just start fresh. And as anybody uh, could probably have guessed, that was a disaster. Um, and Dave Eggers, who's the um, kind of editor, designer uh, in charge of The Believer and McSweeney's, um, you know, we, we sent him our pilot episode of The Organist, and he said, this sounds like uh, like, like 3 a.m. college radio, like super stoner, just nonsense. Like, you can't do this. This is not okay. Uh, so we, but I, and then I kind of had a moment where I said, well, hey, but, you know, The Believer is experimental. We're experimental. And he had to remind me that this magazine I've been working for for like eight years, uh, he said, you know, all the words are in the right order in the articles. The headlines describe what the articles are about. And I was kind of chastened and I said, oh, right. Uh, and yet, you know, I do think of The Believer as having a sort of spirit of experimentation and we do do weird things like, um, you know, kind of like playing with the form of a magazine and, and doing weird die cuts on the cover and stuff. And so I had to kind of reconsider what the place of experimentation was in sort of my own approach to art and, and, and media. And, um, and so that's really what that kind of question is what's informing today's talk for me. Um, and so anyway, Ross and I went back to the drawing board and kind of we found some people who actually knew how to make radio to help us. And um, this is just a little clip from the first episode of The Organist. Pod. Cast. Out of the billions of thermal tubes inside your computer, through some necessary wires and pipes, into your kitchens and living rooms and cars and office spaces and halfway houses. A veriform bouquet of content, delivered with precision and love, to you. It's magic. That's the only way to look at it. Magic, except it's not magic at all. A podcast is every bit as explainable as your toaster. So anyway, that's, so we've come a long way since then, and, and it's something that I struggle with and think about every time we put out an episode, is this balance uh, between... Um, weirdness, experimentation, annoying listeners, pushing the form and entertaining them and, and you know, having some kind of pedagogical content. And, uh, and so it's a contention that I think plays out across radio history. And that's what we're going to talk about today in part. Yeah. And it's been great working on this with Andrew because it's a tension that's also in a positive, healthy way played out between the two of us because experimental is a really hard word to define. What's experimental for you may not be experimental for us. So we thought we would ask some people about what seems experimental to them. I would define experimental radio or podcasts as... The word experimentation is 
a word I've never loved. You know, it kind of reeks of 1960s or 1980s kind of stuff. I think the term experimental has become really diluted and really safe. What do you do when you want to be experimental, but when the actual radio medium doesn't allow for that? There are elements of experimentation which the mainstream needs, which delight the ear or which draw the ear in in a different way. I think of the word convention. Conventional is white, (laughs) the white population. What is acceptable? listening. I think a lot about noise and silence when it comes to this. This balance between not knowing and and knowing, I think is a really important way to think about experimentation. This balance is more of what we're going to talk about right now. And we're going to run you through a little bit of the table of contents of what we're going to say. So we had to limit this in some way. And so we are mostly focused on English language work uh, that is in a mostly documentary mode. Um, And I focused on the US and the UK and? I focused on Canada and talking about landscapes, so indigenous uses of sound art and radio art also, and then into Australia. And rather than, you know, I'm kind of at pains to have this not be boring history class time. So to that end, I don't know if this actually makes it any less boring, but I, I kind of the U.S. is organized around this idea of noises of war and the U.K. and Europe, noises of the city. And then Michelle and I kind of collaborate on that final one, no, noisy voices. Yes. So, yeah. So we'll jump into noises of war now with Andrew. Let us begin. I'm still Andrew. Here we go. So starting off with this figure, F.T. Marinetti. So Marinetti was an Italian uh, artist, poet. Um, He wrote the Futurist Manifesto in 1909 and later helped start the fascist party in Italy, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, Very problematic figure, but um, very influential in the history of 20th century modernism and avant-garde art practices. And for our purposes here, he's important because he actually wrote another manifesto about radio where he has this great term, the wireless imagination. And he was one of these, the the first to kind of think about the radio as a space for artistic experimentation and not just a a tool for mass mass communication. And the Futurist Manifesto celebrates the noise of war as a beautiful thing. And it's also, I think, an early or first time that really this idea of all this industrialization that's happening, like the, the noise of machines can be beautiful. He celebrates the sound of planes and cars. Um, and, and weirdly, he um, was also a journalist covering the Balkan War of 1912 in uh, uh, Adrianople, now Turkey, and produced this piece called Zang Tum Tum that was published as a chapbook. Um, I'm embarrassed to admit, I'm not sure if this recording is him reading it. I think it is. But it's this um, really wild poem that is a kind of like avant-garde war reporting. Um, it's, it's his description of the battle, um, but as told in this, there's, you'll hear Italian, but it's also automatopoeia and just weird mouth sounds. Let's listen to that. So this is this is this is war reporting, but in a really uh, like at the birth of the of recording technology, and 
I feel like there's something here about language trying to represent extremity and using art to kind of show that failure uh, of language to do that. And in some ways, I think this is a foundational moment for, for radio art, but also for even for, for journalism in some weird way. Um, I think you can hear echoes of it in the famous recording of the Hindenburg disaster where Herbert Morrison, you know, if, if you've ever heard like, oh, the humanity, you know, and he's, he's recording um, a report live to lacquered disc um, a little bit later than this. And then the, the, the Zeppelin explodes and he um, becomes completely kind of discomposed on mic. And um, that, I think that you can sort of draw a line between this moment and that moment. But then by the time we get to World War II, you know, which, which, which has been written about as the first, as the radio war, right? Like this is like Americans were hearing the, the war on these giant pieces of furniture in their homes called radios. Um, and, and, and the sort of crucial figure uh, is of course Edward R. Murrow, who is credited with the invention of broadcast journalism. And I think just listen to this tape and, and you can hear the way that the sort of trope of the newsman, you know, like the super authoritative uh, good luck and good night newsman is kind of born here. I'll just let you listen to the traffic and the sound of the siren for a moment. Just a few people here walking rather hurriedly toward the air raid shelters. Some of them casually, a man stops in front of me to light a cigarette. Here comes one of those big red buses around the corner. Double-deckers they are, just a few lights on the top deck. In this blackness, it looks very much like a ship that's passing in the night, and you just see the portholes. So even though this is maybe surprising to hear in a presentation on experimental radio, I think there are experiments here, and, and sometimes I think I maybe conflate the ideas of experimentation and art, uh, but there's artistry in that, and you listen to the, the description, it's a very literary description, the way he's describing what he sees. Also, there's an important development here, which is that you know, you, you, there's, a, there's a way in which you know, they, he, ran a, he, he, he convinced the British government to let him run a wire up to the roof so that he could do that live broadcast from the roof, which is, I think there's a thread running through all of this history where technology and experimentation go hand in hand, where people are um, using these new tools in new ways. Okay, so just like that, that wire is going up to the roof for Murrow, at the same time, people were hooking their mics up to long wires and dangling them down tall buildings in the US uh, to interview the proverbial man on the street. There was a radio show called Vox Pop that came out around this time. So I just, I really, uh, that's another kind of example, I think, of, of technology. Even though if we listen to tape of Vox Pop, it wouldn't sound experimental. It just would sound like a, you know, working class American from the 1940s talking about the war. But there's experiment in that, in that just that gesture of, of dangling the microphone down uh, from the building. Um, however, I do think you will hear experimentation in uh, this next clip, which is uh, Norman Corwin, who was a sort of giant of 1940s radio drama. Um, after the war, he got hired by the UN uh, with some fancy title like the director of radio projects or something for the UN and produced a series of, of documentary pieces, but that used all the tools that he had developed in making radio dramas. And so this is what you're gonna hear. There's actuality, you know, magnetic tape recording technology had gotten much better by, this is by 1950. So there's recorded actuality from the floor of the UN mixed with a bunch of other elements that you'll hear. Not fiction. Nothing in this program is fiction. Tupac Amaru in Bolivia, before and after him, thousands of men like him tortured in other countries for other causes at other times 
right up through Germany, 1945, all of which document A777 takes into account. Article 5. No one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. Bolivia? Si. Brazil? Si. Burma? Yes. Belarusia? Abstain. Canada? Yes. Chile? Si. China? Stop for China. Uh, there's a guy named Neil Verma who's wandering around Third Coast today uh, who teaches at Northwestern, and he has written about Norman Corwin a lot, and he's this word that he invented that I really love, uh, kaleidosonic, which is like kaleidoscopic, but for your ears. Um, and, and that's a word he uses to describe Norman Corwin style. Um, and and he, he opposes it to this idea of there's intimate radio. And if you think of radio dramas where you hear like the clip-clop of the horses and like we're in this one space, uh, and you follow somebody through a space. And the kaleidosonic style is like this, where we're zipping from some like celestial narrator down to the floor of the UN over somewhere else just in a minute. And I think in this clip you can hear origins of something like more perfect or, or just Radiolab more generally, where not just in the, the, the treatment of sound, but also in the, the way it uses these kind of creative and sometimes fictional techniques to have a civic purpose, like a lot of these documentaries are, you know, this is the describing the Declaration on Human Rights. So, 1950. Now let's jump forward to 1962. Studs Terkel is really well known as an oral historian. Uh, you know, he put out, puts, puts out the book Working, and, um, and if you listen to his radio work, a lot of it is conversations, two ways we'd call them. Uh, you can hear his voice in it. But in 62, he was listening to a lot of work from Europe, that we can talk a little bit about later, and also Norman Corwin, he cites as an influence, and he broadcasts this documentary called Born to Live. And uh, let's just listen to uh, a little, like 30 seconds from close to the beginning. And she said uh, it was so uh, such an intense heat that she jumped into the uh, nearby river, the small river that was running through the city. <laughs> She said that the, the, her friends were in the river. I don't think I can say it. So I think, first of all, this is, this is produced in a montage style, not, not narrated. There's no narrator. It just jumps from voice to voice. Right after this clip ends, there's... Um, uh, Japanese school children singing school songs, and then that kind of fades really uh, well into a, American school children singing songs with like a similar melody. And this is a style that I think it's not new in Europe, but in the US, you don't, I think, start to hear this until around now. And then um, the Kitchen Sisters, I think, are a great example of, of producers who really took that ball and ran with it and, and, and really mastered the art of doing this sort of non narrated documentary style. But another thing I just wanted to, to highlight here is the way that he lets the Japanese tape run, and that's okay. There's not this impulse to come in and, and translate it right away, and that there's real value in hearing just the grain of that voice, and there's real content in that. And I think that that's an idea that's developing in the 60s here. And also even just like with Marinetti, this, the failure of language, like the way that the translator in that clip couldn't bear to translate it, and yet that also is 
has far more emotional impact than if it was just sort of a straight Murrow-style report. Okay, cruising through the decades here, folks. Uh, now it's the 70s. Sergeant Pepper comes out in 67. Uh, Beatles mania. And I mentioned Beatles mania not to get mild appreciative laughter, but uh, <laughs> thank you, more rousing laughter. But because uh, uh, there's a producer named Keith Talbot who was at NPR, not at the beginning, but in the early years, and he described himself to me as the, he was like the Bell Labs of NPR. And Ira Glass, who's given Third Coast Talks on Keith Talbot's work before, describes him as like his job at NPR was basically to come up with new ways of telling stories on the radio. And Keith Talbot described Sgt. Pepper's to me as an influence in that it, pop records before that, there would be like really thick bands of silence between the songs. And Sgt. Pepper's was the first album that really was like a concept album where the songs flowed into each other. And you can, I'm not gonna play any of Keith Talbot's work today because we don't have time, but it's all, a lot, really good stuff is on the Third Coast website um, and elsewhere online. Um, and he does these wild things like Corwin that we just heard, but taken kind of to the next level where there'll be like a totally fictional narrator setting up this really weird conceit and then that will bring you from documentary piece to documentary piece. But I do wanna play a little bit from this very first episode of All Things Considered. Uh, from the May Day protests in, in DC. And I think it's like an even an extension of this montage kind of kaleidosonic style. That's an expansion of this sort of montage style where the transitions are just sound. One, two, three army helicopters flying surveillance over the small section of Washington's complicated highway system. A line of young people has just come across the highway. Traffic is stopped. And here come the police. One, two. So NPR had its first major financial crisis in 83, where Keith Talbot was fired. And a lot of people who were kind of associated with this more sound-oriented, creative side of NPR left. And then I think the history of NPR, you can really, I, I, I've talked to people who've been there for sort of that whole span, and it, it's pretty clear that, that as NPR's respectability and sort of respect in the world as, as a mainstream news organization increased, its appetite for sort of experimental uh, work like this that plays with sound decreased. And, and, and I think you could even, the people I talked to uh, like Art Silverman and, and Peter Breslow kind of point to these major moments like the first Gulf War or 9-11 and they're sort of like as sort of watershed moments where lots, even more experimentation left at those moments. And, and of course, the listeners increased a lot. And so there's a pretty uh, clear relationship there. Um, so during this time when experimental radio producers uh, for a while were, public, were putting great work on NPR and there's a period maybe beginning around the 80s and 90s that it was a lot harder to place that kind of work uh, with a few exceptions. And um, there's a, a, a producer named Helen Thorrington who had a, a program called uh, New American Radio that has got an awesome archive online, thankfully, called somewhere.org. Um, and she commissioned a ton of work from producers like, I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, uh, Susan Laurie Parks, Pamela Z, Negative Land, Tom Lopez, Sarah Montague, Joan Schumann, Ned Sublette, Gregory Whitehead, and I list that long list just as a way, to, again, because we're not gonna have time to listen to all of that stuff, but it's just a, it's a treasure trove of stuff. But so, just to continue the sort of narrative of the US and, and the sort of the, the authoritative 
journalistic voice in tension with experimentation here. So Keith Talbot, there's a kind of interesting lineage that, that maybe you've heard where he, Keith Talbot hired Ira Glass as an intern uh, uh, when Ira Glass was 19, I think, and um, Ira Glass's first job at NPR when he was hired was to be the production assistant of a producer named Joe Frank, and this was still in the, the weird days. Um, Joe Frank comes out of this lineage that I want to mention at uh, WBAI, the Pacifica station in New York, which is a home for uh, his work and also Bob Fass and Gene Shepard. Um, and, and, and those three those three guys all have this style of sort of monologues and these very dark, this very kind of like, the, like in the spirit of the 60s kind of bohemian moment, uh, they, they, they sound hip and they're very digressive and they kind of like go off on these tangents and then at their best they'll like loop back and come back around. And, and, and in a way they're like, they're like the offspring of Edward R. Murrow but his sort of like countercultural, uh, really dark, weird, surreal uh, offsprings. So let's listen to a little bit of uh, a clip from Joe Frank. Now many people condemn me for rocketing the cities of our enemy. But why not kill citizens? Are they less guilty than soldiers? Citizens must be held accountable for the actions of their government. Why shouldn't they die? Do they deserve to live more than the young men on the front? Is it not morally offensive that civilians should go about the business of their daily lives while soldiers die on the field of battle? So just to end this section, I want to talk about two more uh, producers. One of them is an avant-garde sound artist, and the other one is a, works at a mainstream news organization. Um, so first, the Jordanian artist, who's now based in Lebanon, Lawrence Abu Hamdan, um, shows his work in museums and art contexts, but also he gets hired by places like Amnesty International and other human rights organizations to do what's called auditory forensics, where he investigates the sonic aspects of scenes of political violence. And this is a piece called The Missing 19 DB, or Decibels. Um, and it's about the Sanyaya prison where thousands of Syrians were tortured and murdered under Assad's regime. And the prisoners there were held in total darkness and weren't allowed to speak above a whisper even when they're being beaten. And Abu Hamdan interviewed five survivors and created this piece which focuses on the sonic component of, uh, to the terror of life inside the prison. And so this is an excerpt from around the middle. No, it's lower than that. That's it. As the prison is still in operation and access is completely denied, the only way to measure the silence of Saidnaya is through the memories of its former detainees. But my hearing is now a third of what it used to be since I was inside Naya. I don't rely on it as much now. I am exposed to so much more noise these days, and I could be remembering it even louder than how it truly was. Lawrence Abu Hamdan calls himself a private ear. Um, and because he's got this sort of dual role as an artist and as an investigator, his work, I think you can hear elements of radio journalism that we can recognize, even as its method and style and presentation are so different. So, and I also think you can hear some auditory forensics and that same impulse, that kind of artistic impulse of, and, and investigative impulse in Rukmani Kalamaki uh, in, in Caliphate. In this clip, she's, she talks like a forensic investigator. Um, and this is, like I said, from Caliphate, the New York Times podcast with Andy Mills as producer. So on this walk that we took mm -hmm. um, towards the church, it became very apparent just yeah. how close we were in proximity yeah. to the, the front lines. I mean, in a way, hearing those sounds was reassuring to me because it just signaled that we were where we needed to be. 
What are you doing right now? I'm trying to get out some trash bags. We're about to go into the building. Finally, we got to the church, and... Could you just tell me real quick before we walk in uh, what, what sort of things you're, you're hoping to find? So, Caliphate has its ears cocked for sound in a way I don't think is common in this kind of audio journalism. But I also think you can hear that kaleidosonic sound that, that, that we were talking about in, in, in Corwin. Um, that clip, you know, I don't know if you've seen Pro Tools sessions of Radiolab or, or podcasts like this. It's kind of like a third coast trope, I feel like. Just like this thicket of Pro Tools session is like a badge of honor. But I'm sure you can sort of hear in that clip how much layering there is between the ambience of the war zone that they're in and then the tape of them kind of talking as they go through the war zone and then the tape of them, their conversation after the fact, all sort of woven together in a sort of single strand. And so there's that, but then there's also the, this just sort of the self-reflexivity of it where it's the podcast is as much about uh, Kalamaki's process as a journalist and as an investigator as it is about how ISIS works. And I think to end this section, I, I want to say that that for contemporary ears, that kind of transparency and, and self-reflection is our contemporary equivalent of the kind of Edward R. Murrow authority. And that, to my ears, this is the sort of, uh, this is where that kind of news authority has come. And it comes through that kind of, that kind of sonic experimentation. Great. Now we're going to turn over to noises of landscape. So we chose this topic because sound is always connected to space. It inhabits a space even if it's a deadened, dry area of a studio. But this section is quite the opposite from that. It's about people who are getting out into the world and listening, talking about the influence of soundscapes, field recordings, and place on Canadian radio and beyond. So I'd like to start off in 1967-68 with the World Soundscape Project. It was founded in the west coast of Canada, in Vancouver, and it marked the beginning of acoustic ecology, this idea that we can consider our environment around us by studying these interactions between humans and their surroundings through sound. And so a well-known publication from this period is by R. Murray Schaefer, who's kind of the iconic figure with the World Soundscapes Project, and it's called The Tuning of the World. And other associated people with this include Barry Truax and Hildegard Westerkamp. So there's a big influence with Simon Fraser University as well. And here's a clip from Hildegard talking about what the World Soundscape Project aimed to do. Really what we were interested in is to examine how we perceive the soundscape, how we listen to it, how we block it out, why we block it out, uh, how we relate to noise, how we relate to silence, how we relate to music. Radio actually was part of that. We were examining at that time kind of radio rhythms. It was almost like a sort of an anthology research of the world of sound. So this group, the World Soundscape Project, was responsible for a CBC series that came out in 1974. It was called Soundscapes of Canada. And it was, uh, recorded, it was recordings composed from a trip by two sound recordings, Bruce Davis and Peter Hughes, as they traveled the 7,000 kilometers across Canada, coast to coast. The series can be really beautiful, it's dogmatic, there's enchanting moments, and it's pretty highbrow. It aired on ideas on CBC. And in some cases, I can't believe that it actually aired on the radio. Here's a clip of R. Murray Schaefer, who actually hosts the program, talking about what you should be doing in order to listen to the show. You'll have to make sure the house is quiet. I hope you can get the cooperation of those around you. 
you need to ask them to be uh, quiet and not to disturb you for the next hour. But that also means no personal distractions like eating, drinking or smoking. It's simply got to be relatively quiet or nothing at all will work. When I first listened to this, I was eating a sandwich. I didn't stop eating. But all to say, sometimes I'm a bad listener, and there are parts of this that are important. And the show really did, um, among other initiatives that the World Soundscape Project were doing, um, it put all of this work at the forefront of environmental and political uses of sound. But I think that doesn't come without a set of issues. Who was actually doing those recordings and what kinds of sounds were being privileged as good sounds and bad sounds was being done by recordists who are prim primarily white, male, and English-speaking. But more on that later. For now, we turn back to Hildegard Westerkamp. Westerkamp's work is well-known. She's beloved. And I think that her work is so beautiful. So I'm going to play an excerpt of her piece, Beneath the Forest Floor. It's a sound art piece that was composed from recordings she did in the Carmana Valley on Vancouver Island. Um, and what's really fascinating about this piece is that she, with it, it marked the beginning of her using digital sound. So she had previously worked in analog, and that shift over um, had a big influence on how she decided to record. So I'm going to play a little clip of her talking about that now. It was a commission by um, the contemporary music show at that time called Two New Hours. Uh, David Yeager was the producer and he commissioned me. Um, he specifically asked me at that time to compose that piece in the first digital facility of the CBC in Toronto. So working in the digital realm for Hildegard meant that she could use silence and noise without that analog hiss of tape which was really influential in how she composed all these pieces together. So I'm going to play this piece. It's pretty amazing. And what's stunning about it is just that all of the elements that make up this were done um, from field recordings and in a studio. Hildegard's ability to meld, mold, and modulate sounds is incredible. Take those deep rumbling sounds, for example. So for me, they kind of evoke the roots of the trees deep in the forest floor, that kind of like achy, deep bass sound. And what she told me is that they're actually the sounds of ravens that she pitched down and stretched, which is pretty amazing. Um, and so I think 
Hildegard's had a really big impact not only on the soundscape kind of community, but also on how documentary and recordings of land are brought into more experimental documentary. Um, and she's inspired a generation of producers and artists. So one of those people is named Paolo Pietro Paolo. Her ability to fuse the traditions of music composition and sound recording and the tradition in Vancouver of that whole Marie Schaefer-led Soundscapes project and to give it her own approach to synthesize all of these various influences, I've always found very beautiful and inspirational. Paolo is a documentary producer and composer, and his experimental works often blur these boundaries between voice, music, and soundscapes. So his work's influenced by Westerkamp, and it takes on acoustic ecology and field recordings into a documentary context, such as his piece, Ode to the Salish Sea, which is composed all from field recordings and interviews he did around a group of waterways that the Shemanus First Nation was proposing that they rename. And it eventually became renamed the Salish Sea, so it's to counter the original colonial naming of the land. So in this piece, you'll hear the voice of a Shemanus elder, George Harris, and his thoughts on the sea. degradation of our ocean bottoms and shores and the sea life that people eat. Very few salmon return to our streams now. There's just less life. I think of Paolo Pietro Paolo's Ode to the Salish Sea and the way he weaves voices with sound, I find really inspiring for a lot of my work. I tend to not narrate my pieces, but let sound intermingle with people's voices and uh, carry that forward. This is Aisha Barmania. Their work is focused on soundscapes as a way of engaging with the world. And Aisha produces a podcast called Sounds Like Life, and it's focused on recording all sorts of different soundscapes. And I really started from this point of like ignorance about uh, what else was being created in the community and then started engaging more with ideas like the World Soundscape Project, listening to Hildegard Westerkamp, and, and kind of exposing myself to more sound ecology, soundscapes, audio art, that kind of thing. So I, I started a bit by doing rather than researching. It's refreshing to hear artists who are pursuing their own methods of approaching experimentation, as well as kind of using their curiosity to foster that pr propulsion forward to start looking to things like the World Soundscape Project and Westerkamp's work. But I think younger artists coming into it are also pointing to the more problematic parts of the World Soundscape Project. A lot of our Murray Schaefer's stuff, I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know if I quite buy into that, but I do think his writing is a great starting point for like beginning to think about this stuff. So these kind of problematic aspects have been documented by Mitchell Akiyama in his article, Unsettling the World Soundscape Project. Akiyama talks about how the World Soundscape Project reinforced this particular colonial myth about the Canadian landscape, that it was empty and bare in a lot of ways. 
And I think that there's a lot of problems around that. So take, for instance, the church bell. There's an entire episode that features a big portion on different church bell recordings. And in a lot of ways, it's really beautiful. But I think this completely ignores what those sounds represented for indigenous communities who were stripped of their culture, put into institutions like residential schools that were supported by the church. And Canada is not a vast, empty landscape. It's a place that's been populated by people for a very long time. So I wanted to get the opinion of a sound artist and a field recordist who has deep roots in the land. So I talked to Janet Rogers. Janet is a sound artist, documentarian, community activist, and poet. She's Haudenosaunee, but moves around a lot. And what I love about Janet's work is that it doesn't necessarily consider this canon of field recordists that preceded her. Instead, she's enthusiastic about her practice, and she ties it to her experience as an Indigenous person. I was able to do my own field recordings and manipulate them and produce them into like these pieces. All of this was just, oh, so exciting. And, and then realizing that there is sound that I can capture, if you will, using a prairie term, but capture that absolutely speaks to the Indigenous experience and reality as well. And those sounds are also embedded in what we call culture and Indigenous culture. Janet composes a wide array of work, but... Themes around land are often what she explores. She takes up these themes of noise and silence, rural remote sounds into a new context, like this piece called Tube, which was composed entirely from recordings on the London subway. What I really love about this piece is that it throws you into this almost nauseating tube of sound where if you're listening in headphones especially, you can feel that kind of like propulsion like this. And I think it uses sound in a really innovative way in that context. And I think indigenous artists like Rogers who've been working with sound like this have been doing so since the creation of radio. Radio served an essential part of how certain communities communicate, for instance. Most indigenous communities have some sort of radio station and... Um, Radio is powerful. You know, radio is a way that we send each other birthday greetings in Indigenous communities. Radio is a way to tell Fred he's fired because uh, he hasn't shown up for two weeks in a row. Radio is a way to say, I found your dog. So podcasting and the internet is the natural extension of, of what we've always done. So I love the idea that a long, long time ago, we always picked up the tools of the day, no matter what they were. So if it was Flint, if it was fire, if it was guns or, or a Zoom H4N, we always make them our own. This is Ryan McMahon, and Ryan helps helped found a podcast network called Cow, called Indian and Cowboy. And what the network is, it's comprised of 10 podcasts, all conceived of and produced by Indigenous artists, producers, and storytellers, who are all getting to share their own voices. So while the content in this network may not necessarily, necessarily be the most experimental, I think that it can be experimental in terms of how the form is approached. Ryan is among many Indigenous producers and artists who are using sound to spread ideas and experiment with a form of radio and podcasting to connect communities to really intimate ways of life. 
Take, for instance, these podcast kits that they're putting together. Ryan's been part of this project. They're made up of a Zoom, a couple of mics and stands, basic software, and they're being distributed to different Indigenous communities across Canada. And most of them were sent out to communities that wanted to use podcasting as language retention and language learning tools. And so Indigenous languages are endangered in North America, and podcasting is the perfect system for that knowledge transfer. So what I love about this is that podcasting can be outside of the conventions of what we consider it for the most part here. It can be used actually as a tool for language retention, as Ryan talks about, um, which ties us back to land and the people who are inhabiting it. Moving on to back to Europe, noises of the city. Um, so like the first chapter about the U.S. organizing you know, the 20th century being this century where radio was born at the beginning and also the first world wars. Uh, also, the 20th century is a time when uh, industrialization and urbanization processes that had started earlier really start to accelerate. Um, and so I think that you can hear that in, in some of this development of radio and also experimental radio. So um, we'll start in Germany. Um, and just as an aside, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning, we're limiting ourselves to English language work. You could have like a week-long conference on German radio art, and we're just completely ignoring almost all of it. Uh, and you know, you could say that sort of almost, there's so many rabbit holes to go down in this subject. But um, this is a pretty foundational piece um, by a German animator, experimental filmmaker named Walter Ruttmann. Um, he wrote a manifesto in 1929 where he wrote, everything audible in the world becomes material. Let's listen. So uh, don't ask me to explain any more than I'm about to, but there's an early version of Sync Sound where he actually edited this piece in 1930 on like the 1930 equivalent of a video edit bay or film edit bay. Um, so there was no, there were no images with it, but I guess that was that was the way that he did it. And 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 he conceived of the piece as um, you know it uses montage as we've been talking about all these these elements kind of cut together. And montage is a really cinematic idea. And I think here there's also this idea of the radio movie, the radio cinema, that right right here close to the beginning of radio as an art form, they're, they're linked together. Um, also, Ruttman is, I think, uh, interesting to look at in terms of a lot of music practices that came later in the 20th century, like Musique Concrète, that had this similar idea of using what we consider noisy buses, the noises of the city, as and, and using them as composition, as musical elements. Um, so, but I need to focus mostly on uh, England because that's where they speak mostly English. Um, and in England, there's this term that, that, that you'll hear, uh, the feature. And in, in, in British radio, the feature is this kind of capacious and morphing term that I think the best way to define it, even though it, it changes, kind of a moving target, is it's a documentary radio story that has poetic elements to it. So it's not just a straight news report. It's a documentary that has art. And so this develops from really early days in the BBC um, with, with producers like D.G. Bridson, 
Um, he has a piece called Steel, an industrial symphony that has, like the Norman Corwin we heard, and we don't have time to get into it, but it's like Norman Corwin where the narration is highly literary and sometimes he'll even just like break into verse, poet, poet, poetry, um, but then they're also bringing actualities in and they are about documentary subjects. And sometimes they use actors to reconstruct scenes, sometimes there's actualities of actual you know, documentary tape. There's a nice quote from Britson uh, where he said, Auden, the poet, was writing poetry for documentary films at the time, why shouldn't I write poems for documentary radio? Um, and so that's sort of the, the British feature. And there's also a technolo technological element here. Um, a producer named Olive Shapley in the 30s, the BBC developed what they called the mobile recording units, which were these vans that you could drive around. And she really pioneered, like she just got in that mobile recording unit van and drove all around England, uh, particularly in the north of England, uh, documenting Manchester uh, working class life. And so like we talked about with the um, Vox Pop in the US, early in the 30s in the UK, there was a strong impulse to, the BBC you know, traditionally is very uh, aristocratic, you know, you're hearing the sort of elite voices and then with producers like Olive Shapley getting working class voices on the air. Um, so kind of like Michelle was saying, you know, to listen to that stuff, uh, and I, like I was saying before about the Vox Pop, it doesn't sound experimental, but there's this sort of politically radical idea there. Um, but then once we get to the, the late 50s, uh, then it actually sounds weird too. Um, so this is um, a year before the BBC Radiophonic Workshop was started. This is a piece that's an introduction to a piece that has Daphne Oram producing it. She was one of the, the founders of the Radiophonic Workshop. And it, it, to me, it, it, it's a nice kind of mini manifesto for what that work was all about. Let's listen. This program is an experiment, an exploration. It's been put together with enormous enthusiasm and equipment designed for other purposes. The basis of it is an unlimited supply of magnetic tape, a recording machine, a razor blade, and something to stick the bits together with, and a group of technicians who think nothing is too much trouble provided it works. You take a sound, any sound, record it, and then change its nature by a multiplicity of operations. You record it at different speeds, you play it backwards, you add it to itself over and over again. You adjust filters, echoes, acoustic qualities. You combine segments of magnetic tape. By these means and many others, you can create sounds which no one has ever heard before. Sounds which have an indefinable and unique quality of their own. You can compose a vast and subtle symphony from the noise of a pin dropping. So while uh, if Olive Shapley was bringing radio in her mobile recording unit vans out of the studio and, and bringing actualities from all around England, here at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, there's this sense of going deep, deep, deep into the studio where sounds can be, new sounds can be created in the sort of alchemy of that lab. Um, and they were, they were really influential on electronic music. Um, if you know the Doctor Who theme song, you know, they did a lot of work for BBC television also, a lot of that kind of really wild synthesizer work from from the beginning of the 60s. Um, uh, and I recommend looking up this piece. It's on YouTube, Private Dreams and Public Nightmares. It's just like a complete kitchen sink of sound experiment. Um, but, but keeping with our city theme here, I wanna play a little bit. This is from the same year. Um, so before the Radiophonic Workshop started, but, but including a lot of the people who are working on it. And this is this truly awesome radio drama that you can find online called The Disagreeable Oyster about this kind of uh, high-strung businessman who gets called on an emergency trip and uh, it's like his warring internal monologues just going off the rails. Um, uh, so let's listen. Oh, Mr. Rig. Mr. Rig? Mr. Rig? Mr. Rig? Mr. Rig? 
So there's just, you know, accelerated history here, but there's another uh, really awesome and important moment in, in British radio history uh, with Charles Parker, who invented something called the radio ballad. So the way they worked is um, Charles Parker worked with two folk musicians, Peggy Seeger and Ewan McCall, and he produced, they produced together eight, eight of them for the BBC between 1958 and 64. And what they would do was they would go out into the field, gather actualities like all of you do, uh, interviewing people, um, you know, recording ambience, and then come back. And then Peggy Seeger and Ewan McCall would compose these folk songs, but they weren't just songs; they were like almost like folk operas. Um, and they would mix them all together. Uh, so there would be the actuality, the interviews, the ambience, the and then the, then the music and narration. Uh, and they're 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 truly awesome. Uh, so let's listen to a clip. This is from. Song of a Road, the second one they did from 1959, which is about the construction of England's first motor highway, the M1. I think it's the soil. I think it's the soil. I mean, you can trace it all back. In the beginning, there was the land. Now, when you dig the ground, you realize what a real bundle of we live on. Earth, cold mountains, plains, and seas form. So the last example I want to share with you is in from starting in the 1970s and, and, and a little earlier, there's new wave cinema happening in Europe. Jean-Luc Godard and Agnes Varda and these filmmakers who are kind of reinventing cinema. And there's a Australian radio producer, Virginia Madsen, who writes about this stuff. And, and she has this idea I love about the radio auteur. The idea, so there's like auteur cinema where even though you have a whole film crew and actors, et cetera, it's really this like single authorial vision like a novelist has uh, in film. And, 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 and Virginia Madsen talks about that happening in radio. Um, and Piers Plowright is, is one such radio auteur who I think made a big impact on, on the sound of British documentary, British feature making um, around then. Um, and so, and, uh, there's some of that studio experimentation that we heard in the BBC Radiophonic Workshop stuff. There's also some of the impulse to interview working class people and, and, and not just elites or celebrities. Um, he cites Glenn Gould's idea of North, um, which, is, which takes a really musical approach to language in ways that we've heard today, uh, treating the language as kind of a source for music. Um, so listen for all that in this clip from, uh, oh, so I should set it up by just saying that there's a character actor in England named, uh, who, who's the subject of this piece. And she, as a, I think as a teenager, had a job painting plaster saints. Uh, and she kind of follows her on this quest to find out, to kind of reconstruct that history of, of that job that she has as a kid. Oh, good morning. Um, oh. Yes, I wonder if you could tell me of the shop. Of the shop? Um, where you... I used um, to work for it. Where I you painted. I painted They the had statues, the Catholic statues, the statues, um, plaster. All saints and everything. Uh, and then I, I used to paint the, the robes, you know, and, and all the right colours. go along and they have all these statues, you know, plaster. And, um, unpainted. And it's in Victoria somewhere, I think. 
Unpainted, yes. Well, I'll take those down. Who's Mr Bartlett? The Catholic... Truth? T-R-U-T-H. Catholic Truth Society. They have unpainted, do they? Great. Now we're going to move on over to all the way across the world to Australia and think about some radiophonic works and radio artworks. So it's using radio and transmission as a part of the piece and how the piece is experienced. So we're going to start in 1974, where a young producer named Kay Mortley was hired by the ABC to do a part-time archivist job. So she'd work for three days a week for two years in a job with the ABC drama and features department. So she would listen to features from overseas and make short reports on them, which is essentially my dream job, but that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but what had happened was that the head of drama and features department, Richard Conley, had gone to Europe for a six-month fellowship and at that time had listened to all this stuff, like a lot of the things Andrew's been talking about, and brought it back to Australia and had created a lot of connections and relationships to continue getting content. So there's ideas around interweaving form and content that the aim of making features wasn't to be didactic, like news reporting. Instead, to create a wandering space for the listener where they could tune in at any point and kind of just like exist in this lim liminal zone with the piece. Um, they could alternate between focus and, and a more expansive sense of wonder and a more vis visceral and pleasurable use of sound. So Mortley, after this job and a few more years, ends up moving to France where she's still an internationally recognized documentary features producer. Um, and the ABC continues to experience this kind of opening up with experimentation. Um, there's a willingness to have these encounters with the unknown. So in 1988, there's a launch of a program called Surface Tension. Producers that go on in the ABC, such as Robin Ravlich, worked on this show. And it was a radio art program. The show only existed for two years, but then it ended and a new show started. And that show was called The Listening Room, and it aired from 1988 to 2003 in a primetime Sunday slot. And it was broadcast on the national radio's AM station, and then very importantly in stereo on ABC's classic FM station. So really cool that the national broadcaster was doing stuff in stereo. And it fostered the growth of really exceptional producers, people such as Natalie Kesticher, Russell Stapleton, and Sherry Delise. So we're gonna hear Sherry now speak a bit about her experience being on, working on The Listening Room. I think an era that was not market-driven in any way. I mean, we at The Listening Room were just so fortunate. There was no sense of the pressure of audience uh, put upon us at that time it was you know a lot of a lot of forces came together these new technologies that we're talking about this kind of permission to experiment you know certain uh, figures in place at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation who actively wanted to promote experimentation and who trusted that creative people should be at the head of this listening room and that we should be able to use our budgets to commission people to experiment and that there would be a lot of, quote, failure within that. Although we didn't even talk about failure in those days, to be perfectly honest. Just that, you know, there was this idea that experimentation was worthwhile. And um, that particular set of circumstances came together, you know, to create a moment that really enabled an incredible uh, body of work to develop. And not just from Australians, but very importantly, from people around the world. 
So yes, as I mentioned, this is Sherry Delise, and she's probably best known by Americans for her music documentary piece called If. Uh, Jad Abumrad and Andy Mills talk about it as a big influence. But aside from this piece, Delise has also had a wide-ranging career, really influential, from making documentaries, feature-making, performance art, radiophonic works to sound installations. Delise is a performance, is a producer rather, and an artist that has carried on the sense of wonderment and openness and experimented throughout her radio career. And she's always worked with this sense of the unknown in her projects. Take her piece, Fidelity, which aired on The Listening Room. Fidelity blends together three distinct pieces of archival recordings amidst a fuzzy backdrop and whirring hiss of archival rhythmic loops of tape. The part I find most captivating is a recording of Helen Keller and her assistant, Polly Thompson. It's during an interview they did at the ABC when they visited Australia. So when they're, they're talking about their method of communication. So Helen Keller and Polly Thompson communicate in this really intricate and intimate way. Keller actually places her fingers on the face and throat of Thompson to feel the language and vibrations in her body. So here's Delise describing the initial reactions to finding this piece of tape. How I communicate with Helen, I spell into her hand by the manual alphabet. It's very simple. Uh, uh, of course, I spell very fast. I spell every letter of every word. I remember vividly sitting in a, a small production booth and listening to that recording and just being transported. It, it's a feeling that's hard to describe and yet I'm sure we all know it. I was just taken with that recording. And in the very moment of hearing it, I also had another recording come to mind. You know, there was a very strong association with a recording of the theremin player, Clara Rockmore. I was hearing that recording kind of in my mind's ear. So that's how that piece arose. It was out of this question, well, what would happen if I put those two recordings together? Sherry's work is held in high regard by a lot of Australian radio makers, including Miyuki Yakiranta. My favourite moment in it is when uh, Helen Keller is speaking and the Australian broadcaster is asking her opinion on flowers and why she likes flowers. Well, then there are two things I want to and ask. And he asks her, her what, what is, is her favourite flower? flower? And, and her favorite the piece loops once. Helen, they have a thicker petal. And just on this tiny little, like, just two kind of sentence interchange. And every time I've heard it, I'm like... What? What? Did time just, what happened there? You know, and it's this great moment, even though I've heard it, you know, several times. I second guess myself. Well, then there are two things I want to ask her, Miss Thompson. What is her favourite flower? My ears tune into it differently. I'm super surprised by it. I just, I, I love the way that time snags. It's like you blink and you just, you, you're not even sure that it happened or not. It's just such a delicate move, and it, and it works perfectly. So yeah, that was just Miyoki Yokiranta. And like that tiny snag reveals, fidelity is about time and loss, memory and archives. It's almost disorienting that the piece exists in a digital form now. It's able to live on flawlessly, while the medium it interrogates disintegrates.
The listening room ended in 2003, and it wasn't directly succeeded by any particular programs. Yet, creative shows like the Radio Eye and Night Air continued the legacy of radio art and noise on the Australian airwaves. Then, in 2012, the Creative Audio Unit was formed at the ABC, with Tony McGregor um, at the forefront. They also hired Julie Shapiro as their executive producer. It was actually created during a time of austerity, but they continued the legacy of commissioning artists, writers, musicians, radio makers, as well as partnering, um, as well as partnering with institutions such as museums, festivals, and galleries to make work. In 2014, the Creative Audio Unit launched Radiotopia and its sister program, Soundproof, which we're going to talk a bit about now. Soundproof was an hour-long, ever-evolving foray into the sound-rich, highly crafted world of radio art. Soundproof was hosted by Miyuki and curated and steered with Julie Shapiro, along with producers Rosa Golin and Sophia Lerner. And here's Miyuki talking a bit about Soundproof. I really love the diversity of it. I will be the first person to tell you it wasn't consistently great and it wasn't consistent. <laughs> but I do think in that diversity and the strangeness in the kind of odd juxtapositions of work, holding the space for a whole bunch of voices to hear each other, to make for each other, to celebrate each other's work, that that to me is super important. And I think Soundproof did that for for the time that it was around. Soundproof aired and commissioned worked by a lot of different producers, including original works by cherished experimenters like Gregory Whitehead to emerging artists like Amy Hanley, and back around to sound artists and field recordists like Camilla Hannon. Here's an excerpt from her piece, Stargazing for Beginners. It's a look upwards into the sky, into celestial bodies and constellations. And it's actually constructed in sound design from a lot of elements in studio, like using marbles and a fishbowl. So it's really creative in that way. So here's a clip from Camilla's piece. The best thing about Orion is that it's visible in the northern and southern hemispheres. So that when I'm in one part of the world, I can feel a direct connection with the other. Soundproof forged a path into the unknown with every episode. And like you know, he said, some did work better than others. But it was always in transit, always kind of shifting and changing, evolving. Take, for instance, the theme. It was kind of like an exquisite corpse deal where they had an original theme composed and then gave the stems out to a bunch of different musicians and artists to remix them. So the theme was always this like amalgamous thing that was changing and shifting. So here's a taste of those themes. I kind of put them with little um, divots in between three that'll play. Soundproof went off the airwaves in January of 2017, but its entire archive remains online for those with curious ears. 
like the listening room Soundproof created and connected an exceptional set of artists and producers worldwide who remain highly influential in the future of radio arts, sound art, and podcasting as a viable artistic medium. Okay, so we've got just a little tiny coda here at the end uh, as by way of conclusion. And this is an experimental musician, Alvin Lussier, and in one of his most famous works from 69. Um, so he sets up in a room two tape recorders, and he turns one on and then reads this prepared statement out loud. Here's a little bit of it. I am recording the sound of my speaking voice, and I am going to play it back into the room again and again until the resonant frequencies of the room reinforce themselves. So as he says, uh, and the, 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 the talk goes on for longer than that, but then he's recording it with the second tape recorder, uh, hits stop on the first one, and then hits record on the first one, play on the second one. And so the recording basically goes back and forth between these two tape recorders until, like he says, the resonant frequencies of the room. Basically, there's this, there's this phenomenon, called, phenomenon called generation loss. And after maybe 15 minutes or so, the recording sounds like this. Later in the paper that he's reading, the text he's reading, he says, I regard this activity not so much as a demonstration of a physical fact, but more as a way to smooth out any irregularities my speech might have. As you might have noticed, Lucier has a stutter. And I think this is such an interesting way of using art as a way of, of kind of addressing disability, really, and smoothing it over, but, um, but also kind of turning it into something uh, positive, I guess. And, uh, and I really like the work of Alice Wong, who has a podcast called Disability Vis Visibility. Um, and, I, and I hear a different, but, but a related spirit in it. Let's, um, Alice Wong um, has spinal muscular atrophy, which um, causes her lungs to function, lung function to decline because of um, her weakening diaphragm muscles. So she has to wear a ventilator to breathe. And, and she records her podcast um, while she's wearing the ventilator. Um, let's listen to a little bit of her. This is a recent episode. Hey. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations on disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. Today's episode features an interview with activist, musician, performer, and songwriter, Dave Levine. Dave won NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. I was recently looking at the book Sound Reporting, the NPR Guide to Audio Journalism, which uh, has this sentence in it. Unless you have a speech impediment or an unusually harsh voice, you can probably be on the radio. And I really love that Alice Wong is just shoving that idea uh, hard and, and giving it the lie. And, and she has a great, great transom manifesto where she says on radio, I want to hear people who lisp, stutter, gurgle, stammer, wheeze. And, and even though she and Alvin Lucier is this, this experimental musician, and, and Alice Wong is, is doing a podcast that, again, is, is maybe more, more conventional in its scope. I think they both have a, a similar spirit that I love. And in terms of a noisy voice, someone who was evoked in my mind was an artist and producer named Aaliyah Pabani. You may know Aaliyah. She did one of the provocations this year. And Aaliyah has been told by a lot of people that she has a great voice, has this like kind of grittiness to it that we'll hear in a sec. But this greediness came from, is actually shaped by damage to her vocal cords as a result of early childhood trauma. 
The way Aaliyah chooses to use her voice on the show called The Imposter that she hosted and produced for the past couple of years was to interrogate and shape episodes, often taking like the content of what the episode was about to shape the form of how the episode ended up being um, produced. So it's like this episode that I'll play an excerpt from. Um, it's about noise and meditation. It's from this piece called Sex Coven, and it delves into a 20-minute noise meditation at the end of the show. So I think it's a really fun use of form in that way. Over the next few days, I'll be periodically releasing five-minute noise meditations for you to listen to when you wake up, on your way to work, before you go to sleep, anytime really. You can listen alone or with other people. After each meditation, you'll hear from the artist who made it. For the last 15 minutes of this episode, you can listen to the final version of Mike Dean's noise meditation, En ce moment. Ready? Here it is. So it goes on and on for 20 more minutes. And so when Andrew and I started talking about this topic of noisy voices, we were talking also about like transmission and signal jamming. And Andrew has a really good example of that next. But the thing it brought up for me was this new podcast. It's called Long Live the New Sound. And it describes itself as the anti-podcast podcast. And it plays with RSS feeds. And it releases content pretty much whenever um, new audio is uploaded. So the project is basically just a submission form for any and all experimental or curious sound and audio works. Um, the creators screen submissions in order to ensure the content isn't hateful, but other than that, anything goes. So it's like this online roving archive of trash, but like the good kind, and treasure. And you can find a lot of interesting stuff. Like just last night, they released like a three-hour soundscape. But I'm going to play you a little excerpt now. It's by this amazing Argentinian sound artist named Sol Reza. And this is from a piece called We Are Measuring the River. Ein leerer Raum deutet auf einen Ort hin, an dem nichts zu sehen ist. Ich beginne mein, ich beginne zu laufen. Um, okay, so I just have one more thing to share. Uh, and this is uh, the work of Mbana Kantako, who's a pioneer of the micro-radio movement in the U.S. Let's listen to a little bit of his show. Oh, yeah, because you look at it, man. Only reason they even made uh, the treaties with the native folk, because they wasn't planning on them people being around to collect nothing, man. And when they start talking that stuff about you, going to get free from the Civil War Day wasn't planning on you being around. Uh, so Kentako is blind, and this is him on WTRA, which is a one-watt, low-power FM station that he set up in the public housing project he lives in in Springfield, Illinois. In 1987, he bought a mail-order transmitter kit and started broadcasting to, and it really, you know, one, one watt reaches basically just the project. But people would, he would have his neighbors and people in the community on the air to talk about police misconduct, and it was a huge success, enough that it, it drew the attention of the FCC, who tried to shut him down and, and find him, and he was totally defiant, and, and, and this, this whole movement kind of grew up around him, um, inspiring people who created free radio, Berkeley, Steal This Radio, which was active in New York in the 90s, um, and, and a lot of others. And he, Kantako is still on the air in Springfield, 
and and since has kind of pushed to and the FCC has changed some of their laws around um, micro right, uh, low power FM broadcasting. Um, and so just thinking back to the the idea I started with with the Marinetti and the idea of words in freedom, I think here there's a different kind of words in freedom. I think you know everybody it's sort of unmistakable the huge influx of money that's pouring into audio at this moment. Uh, and, I, and with that comes this really high premium that's paid to clarity and narrative economy and emotion and, 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 and in some cases an unwillingness to criticize power. And so I think one of the values of experimental radio right now, whether it's of any kind, like we've heard the formally radical stuff that do new things with technology or like how stories are structured or sonically radical that, that sound totally new or like this politically radical, any time work pushes against conventions, I think it's also pushing against power. So I urge you to listen to and support and then go on to make experimental radio. Just to jam off of what Andrew's saying, um, in an era where industry reigns, we need to find new avenues for experimentation and making sure that people get paid for it. We're not sure what that looks like, so we throw this question back to you and your work. What could it sound like to create a space for playfulness, for fuck-ups, for forays into the unknown? to not center audience and numbers and preconceived notions of narrative audio. The form is new enough that these so-called traditions or conventions can be thrown out the door, and in its place, ideas from artists and producers who haven't always had this chance or opportunity to experiment. So this is a question for all of us in this moment. How valuable is true experimentation for you? Thank you. Thank you. The question I had was sort of what, Michelle, you ended on is uh, I'm just curious about why you were doing this research. You know, a lot of the people you're talking about, one of the things that they celebrate about the, the opportunities they were given was the opportunity to, to make mistakes um, and to do things that aren't hits and kind of suck. Um, or uh, I think, as you put it, the fuck, to fuck up, right? Um, so I was just wondering if in your research, like a lot of the pieces you played for us are really great masterpieces, but did you come across any kind of fuck ups that you thought were generative or like kind of productive? Because that's one of the things that experimental radio does, right? Things that aren't very good, but give you new ideas, that kind of thing. I mean, for me, it was the, while you're thinking, I'll just say yeah, it was a it. challenge um, because when we started, we were like, okay, all these repositories of experimental work, and when you just dive in head first, you're immediately like, whoa, get me out of here. I mean, you know, for better or worse, it's just like a garbage heap of weirdness, and not in a good way. Uh, but I think like you hear that in Cher Delis and, and and others, like I think Helen Thorrington told me the same thing, that it's sort of part of the process. And as you say, it's like the scientific method. That's where we get this notion of experimentalism is that you're, you're making an experiment. If it, if it succeeds, science moves forward. And if it fails, science moves forward also. And so I think, I think that's a really great point. And I think you need to have, and that's why these archives are so wonderful, like what mm -hmm. Michelle is doing and like the New American Radio archive somewhere.org, because they have everything mixed together. There are the gems with the failed experiments. And I think we can learn from listening to them. And maybe we should have included some failed experiments more in this talk next time. Yeah, and it's interesting what Miyoki talks about with Soundproof, which like I think Soundproof is such a fascinating program and how it exists. And just that like they weren't too tied to it needing to be perfect every time too. And like that mentality I think really doesn't exist anymore. I think everything feels super polished. So yeah, just I think a lot of it comes from that. But if you go back through the Soundproof archives, like you can listen to stuff that maybe doesn't appeal to you or like is just kind of out there and not in a way that's resonating. And like the thing that Miyoki talks about is like, the thing is, it's the radio, and in five minutes, probably something else will be on. So, like, you know, that time around listening, I think, now has become so precious, and that it wasn't necessarily the case um, when broadcast radio reigned. So, I think that is a whole shift in mentality around it that I 
really am thinking a lot about right now. I just wondered if you had any thoughts about kind of sneaking some experimentation into um, member station work that's a little bit more straightforward while still, you know, being true to the story, but also, uh, and also not making your managers too angry at you. If you find enough people and can, can kind of convince really small avenues, like starting small, and there's um, a couple of different shows, I think, where like very small soundscapes exist, different like recordings around town or in like a five minute format that are played. So like small little ideas that maybe will tie into a larger news story, but flipping it from a different angle. Take, for instance, something like um, Paolo, Pietro Paolo's piece, um, Ode to the Sailor Sea, which it's long and really composed, and it, it wasn't done necessarily for um, the CBC. But what he ended up doing was he made this beautiful, you know, sound art piece that was transmitted, like he did it at Deep Wireless Festival. And then he took those recordings and then kind of um, re mixed it a bit and put in more narration from um, a reporter and like created a news piece out of it. And it aired on The Current on CBC Radio, which is their like flagship, one of their flagship news programs. So I think it's thinking about like what different formats can you actually use in that way. And like a lot of times it's like starting small and nudging ideas, um, but finding some groups of like-minded people and a little bit of solidarity, I think goes a long way. Hi. Um, uh, my question is about the end, the very end, where like, um, how can you know we foster uh, spaces for experimentation and get it compensated for it? Um, just to, I have these like two voices in my head, and like I will tell you the not pleasant one, and I would like you to comment on that, which is um, if if experimentation for me is related to the word play. You play with toys, you play with instruments, you play with audio techniques, and eventually you get professional, and then you can exchange that skill that you gain by experimenting to the market that has a supply and demand and it's requiring certain things. Um, so thinking that way, experimentation by itself uh, would necessarily imply not getting paid, because if you pay for my experimentation, then out of a sudden, um, it's not experimental anymore, like I'm, 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 I'm like, I'm giving that in exchange of money so that immediately would change my mindset. Um, how, how do you think of this, like of experimentation as a job or like getting compensated for it and how you view this? So for me, I definitely hear where you're coming from. So like this idea that you're getting, if you're getting paid and someone's dictating what that form is, then you're like losing some kind of control and not having that play in it. And I think it's a thing that a lot of producers face is they like do experimental stuff in the beginning and then get in, they have a job and then they like lose the <laughs> playfulness. Um, so yeah, I think it is a bit complicated because I would say something like The Listening Room, which I talked about, that show is experimental and they gave money to producers and entrusted creative people to be making decisions. And I think one of the problems I see now is that a lot of people who were creators aren't actually in management roles. So they don't really have that understanding of why playfulness is important. Yeah, so it's a tough one. I think that in terms of money, it's complicated. Like, um, I think there's a lot of radio sound art work that can be grant funded because it is art in the arts realm. Um, so I think that is a more um, like less control based avenue because you have a lot of can have a lot of freedom. For me, it's like about thinking about alternative realms. Like if this stuff isn't happening on the broadcasters anymore, and I, I kind of feel not to. Um, I don't really think in the future and radio art's gonna exist um, in broadcasting, that's my opinion. But like finding new avenues, like what about museums, art galleries, like places where the arts have been fostered and exist. Um, yeah, and I think that money can be less transactional that way. 
just to comment on your last comment, um, I remember five, five years ago, uh, Eric Letourneau, which was a professor, is a professor of radio at uh, Quebec University of Montreal, interviewed me because I used to do radio art. And he was asking me about the future of radio art if I still believed in it, and I told him no. Uh, as, as you just said, you know, and uh, five years later, here I am with uh, uh, an international radio art contest. So, and finding it uh, uh, very much alive, uh, as you said, with Salveza in Latin America, you know, Neil Verma, which participated also. Uh, a lot of people from the Americas, the whole, all of the Americas, and Europe, and I know elsewhere also. Uh, so you, you still, you, do you think it will, the, it's an art form that will uh, trickle down to more conventional radio? That's what I always believe. Uh, and I want to get your opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that, that's a, that cycle that you see where there's avant-garde revolutions and then 40 years later you see it on billboards selling Apple products or whatever. Uh, and so, and I think maybe even some in some of the history that we shared, you see that where now, like some of the things that would have sounded really radical now are, are kind of mainstream. Like, like, I think it's worth pointing out that This American Life, you know, when Ira Glass first pitched it to NPR, you know, his voice, you know, his voice was kind of one of these noisy voices and that kind of like nasal, uh, dare I say, as a fellow Jew, a Jewish, you know, kind of a sound was like, that wasn't really like that kind of Edward Murrow authoritative thing. And now, you know, and similarly for the voices on early This American Life, like Sarah Vowell and, and David Sedaris uh, and David Rakoff, and now these, those are like the sort of canonical radio producers, at least of you know, a certain period. So I do think that, that that cycle happens. And that in some ways, you can console yourself as a radio artist, thinking like, well, my work will have influence someday. But also, I think that's kind of depressing. Like, you know, it'll be commercialized someday, and then that will be validating. So it comes down to like, what, what, why are you making the work in the first place? Are you doing it for the sake of changing something that you think is wrong, or are you doing it because you're a contrarian and you want to just be different? You know, so I think, it, to me, it comes back to that question of motivation. Mm -hmm. And I think radio art is living on in a lot of um, contexts, and it's really influential. And it's one of the reasons why I like worked on this map-related thing, it's because um, sound artists, like radio artists, people like Alessandro Bassetti, who's um, a really, really phenomenal sound artist, if you haven't checked him his work out before, he's Italian. Um, but he's had a really big influence on a lot of ra radio producers I know. Like a lot of the Australian people I know like love his work. And I think it's that, like for me, um, when I think about what I do, which is mainly documentary focused and has some more experimental angles in it, like I love listening to that kind of work and drawing inspiration from it. And I think it will live on in that context for sure. And I think there's a lot of um, European institutions, like I know in Germany and France, like with Arte, that there's still um, a lot of amazing work happening there in the sound art, radio art realm. Oh, just on that note, I would just say that, um, so I'm from Europe originally, and I've, I've gone to fest radio festivals in Europe and, and uh, at the IFC, which International Feature Conference, which moves around every year to different parts of the world. But, um, but and, and yeah, it's such a different experience to go there from, from Third Coast, which is more of a kind of, um, Anyway, I would recommend you guys, if you're interested in more kind of long form, sound rich, uh, experimental radio works to go to Pre-Europa, uh, which is held in, in, uh, in Berlin every October, and, and uh, which is a daunting week long event where you listen to radio in a room like this uh, for like two hours straight and then you go in, into another room and discuss what you just heard for two hours. Um, 
So it's really, it's, it's important. It's anyway, it's a, yeah, I've always dreamed about like um, merging these two, like Third Coast and, and Pre-Robo or IFC because, um, because here I feel like, yeah, we need critical language also around listening to, to this kind of work that you guys are talking about. Like, um, anyway, thank you for your presentation. All right, thank you guys. Woo!